Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Chris Bucky from Lasky. He's a multiple startup founder. He's uh, very familiar with the ins and outs of Silicon Valley, raising capital, starting businesses, running businesses, selling businesses, identifying what works and what doesn't work. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. What's your background? Yeah, um, so I'm a, I'm a founder um, and and a operator occasionally. Um, I, I kind of I kind of differentiate those two a little bit, but um, you know I, I definitely do a lot of investing uh, and stuff like that. But I think primarily, like day to day, the vast majority of my time uh, over the last uh, ten years has been spent uh, either starting companies, running my own companies, or uh, running other people's companies as an early employee. Um, and so, uh, really got started, um, like 10 years ago. Uh, and so, uh, out, out of college and, uh, joined as an early employee at a real estate startup here in San Francisco. And that's just kind of like created this whole, um, crazy whirlwind of, of, uh, three different startups now on my fourth over the last uh, 10 or 11 years. Um, and so really spent like, uh, probably the first five years in real estate tech, and then the last six years in HR tech and recruiting tech, um, with a whole lot of like small company selling to big company, working at big company, going back, starting or joining something else that's small, and just kind of like repeating that process quite a bit over the last uh, eleven years. So, real estate is the um, uniting factor. Yeah, um, there's yeah. I mean, I, I love I love real estate. I spent uh, I spent. Like I said, like five years in real estate, um, and then uh, and uh, and then when I was in real estate tech, started buying a lot of my own properties uh, in in like 2012, um, and so have always been an investor in real estate um, from a founder perspective. Haven't worked at or been running a, a real estate tech company since 2015. Um, so the last the last five and a half or six years has been super focused in uh, in recruiting tech. Uh, and then, you know, now with, with my current company that started about a month ago, doing something totally different again. So it's like, I think I just get really bored after five or six years in an industry. Um, I find that once you're in an industry and you do really well, uh, everybody wants you to help them, invest in them, advise them in that industry. So it's hard to ever get out. Um, so I spent, you know, again, six years in recruiting tech, was absolutely exhausted. Uh, and now every recruiting tech company wants to work with me and wants to have me as an investor. So it's it's hard to ever leave, right? Like I think it's uh, there are these like patterns of like going deep into an industry for a few years. And uh, again, if things work out well and you meet lots of people, uh, you know, I, I want to support those people as a you know angel investor or LP or whatever. So um, yeah, I mean that's that's the but certainly real estate is is definitely a a, a passion of mine. But um, don't consider myself kind of a um, you know, a, a, You're not a real estate not guy. Like a sponsor. Yeah, yeah, not, not, not like through and through a real estate guy by any means. Yeah. So, what's the current project? Yeah, 
Um, so Lasky is the company. It's Lasky.co, um, and it's I'm teaming back up with my previous co-founder um, and, and some of our early team from my last company, Interviewed. Um, so this team has worked together for uh, seven years now across three companies, um, and we are helping uh, mostly mostly mid-market companies um, as they go from like uh, usually a few million dollars up to like tens of millions of dollars in in revenue. Um, mid-market SaaS companies for the most part, but also working with a lot of marketplaces, um, really coming in and helping them from a, a strategy and sales perspective um, grow that revenue and kind of build out the playbook and put the processes in place to, to make that happen. Um, so, you know, our team's done this at, at several companies and uh, now we're kind of creating a model through um, consulting plus software uh, that we're building in-house to, to actually help, you know, a bunch of other companies do this. So... When you said earlier that you'd been both a founder and an operator, and, and sometimes you said that there was a distinction between those two, w let's talk a little bit about that. What, what's the distinction between the two? What sort of skills do you need? Yeah, I think, um, you know, founder is, it, it, it really is, I think, distinct because uh, the job is doing quite literally everything. Like I've spent hours trying to figure out this like, incorporation issue where you know one of our founding engineers is in Canada and we're based in the US and it's like you know you're, you're wearing like the the part-time accountant and part-time you know uh, state registration expert and you know part-time lawyer hat and you're, you're dealing with kind of all these experts and then you're switching gears and you're you're writing code or you're like selling the projects you're uh, you know pitching clients and so it is this kind of like you know shit show. Uh, where I think, uh, you know, in my experience, an operator, uh, you know, almost always in my experience, it's this much more streamlined process where you are, you know, in, as a founder, you're trying to find what works. Uh, as an operator, I think you're taking what has been working and, you know, scaling that to the next level or like putting the process in place to do that 100 times over or do it, you know, 10x better. Um, and so I think from my experiences, like the, the, the two companies that I've started, it's it's just like, you know, the first year, no matter how many times you do it, you know, have a lot of great mentors and investors and stuff who who say the same. And it's just like, it's always chaos. It doesn't matter. There, there, there is no playbook. You're entering a different industry. You're hiring. You're trying to figure shit out. It's 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 a mess. Um, as you know, as an operator, in my last role, I, I led enterprise product um, for a division at Indeed, uh, which is, you know, over 10,000 people. And, you know, hundreds of people on the enterprise team in, in engineering roles. And that was not chaos. Like we, you know, there were billions of dollars in revenue there. Uh, and that was a story of like, how do we grow this, you know, already great machine uh, and kind of take that to the next level. So, you know, again, I think as a founder, it's like, how do we, uh, how do we consistently from like a revenue perspective, how are we 10 Xing or hundred Xing, you know, for the first like, you know, two or three years, uh, you know, obviously at, at a large company as an operator, I've worked at Zillow, um, right around the time that they went public, uh, and then Indeed. Um, so both, you know, kind of these large, um, you know, these, these fairly large publicly traded companies, and uh, it's just it's a totally different beast. So I, I like doing both. I certainly like starting companies um, more, but I think the nature of starting a company is that, um, you know, if, if things go really well, a lot of the times that ends up in an exit, uh, and you end up working at the acquirer. And so, you know, both of my experiences of, of working at uh, an acquirer. Um, post acquisition have been great. Uh, How long did you last? Um, a, a little longer this last time. Uh, the, the company. <laughs> How long is that? Um, yeah, the, the first the first time uh, was was uh, selling a real estate tech company 
uh, where I was an early employee to Zillow in, in 2012 uh, and lasted about a year and a half at Zillow. Uh, and it was, it was very fun, um, but it wasn't, uh, it, it became, it definitely became monotonous uh, fairly quickly. I, I think I was like, kind of like low middle manager, you know, I was probably <laughs> like 24 at the time or something like that. Um, and, and the company was growing really quickly. So it created like a ton of like, you know, untapped opportunity for me uh, at, at, you know, pretty early age, which was awesome. Um, but, you know, this last time was was three years um, and uh, when we sold to Indeed and and uh, and actually the, the founding team all left um, around the same time about two months ago, uh, but we were the first people on our team to go, uh, which I think really speaks, you know, volumes to Indeed as a company and as an acquirer that we were, I think, one of the first companies that they had acquired um, and it's, you know, like I said, this fairly sizable company of, you know, over 10,000 people now. Uh, and the fact that, you know, all of our team uh, from product people to engineers to UX to sales uh, are still there, I think uh, is, is pretty powerful, you know, almost three and a half years in now. Um, you favor the standing desk? Yeah, you know, I've got both. Uh, I, uh, I, I switch back and forth. I, I actually like I just got this uh, set up and it, it works pretty well. I've got the books behind me so that people know that I'm smart. Nice. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, we've got the, the plants so people know that I'm cultured with the artwork. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to, uh, to convey that to clients for sure. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I've got, I got the, uh, the standing desk with the walking treadmill just there because I, I, yeah. I've got like uh, ADHD or something. I've got to be like doing like 10 different things at once. Um, where are you based in San Francisco? Uh, so based, we, I've, I've been in San Francisco for, uh, I guess, 11 years. Uh, and so my, my now wife and I, we were dating, we were, we were dating and living in, in the city in San Francisco. Um, and we were there for about eight years, uh, together. And now, um, for the last, uh, I guess almost three years, about two and a half years, we've been out in Danville, uh, in, in the East Bay where. Um, we can like hear cows in our backyard oh, nice. uh, you pass like horses on the way to our house. So it's, it's very different than, um, you know, passing, uh, car break-ins and, and piles of shit on the street, but it's a, <laughs> it's a whole different vibe here, but we're only like 45 minutes to the city. It's cow shit uh, rather than human shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. A different, a different kind of shit you're dealing with for sure. Yeah. I, I lived in, I lived in San Fran for a few years with my girlfriend, now my wife, and we had, we had this nice view of the Bay bridge we were on, um, Clay and Jones, which is where you know the, nice. it's got the famous famous bullet uh, bodega there, where they film the the scene where the car loses six um, uh, hubcaps through the course of yeah. the the car chase, which is hilarious because yeah. there's you know four wheels on the car. It's <laughs> it was really beautiful. It had the shot of the had this like angle on the Bay Bridge, and because you're rent controlled, you're fine when you're there. But uh, I don't think I could afford it anymore. I think it's gone, it's gone bananas there, right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 out of control. When when were you there? Two thousand four, five, six. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's it's um. I was like, there's nothing going on. I, there's nothing yeah, happening yeah. here, might, so might it's all over. Now. I missed it. You're right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. When I first moved to the to the Bay Area, back to the Bay Area, I was born in born in San Jose, uh, and then and then uh, left when I was when I was growing up in in Colorado, and then went to college in Los Angeles and came back. Um, and, and I moved to, uh, San Mateo, uh, and kind of like Burlingame area in the South Bay and had like a roommate and we were in like a one bedroom or no, we were in a, a sorry, like a three bedroom house that, that was like two bath, but it had like a one car garage and a yard and everything. Uh, and we were paying, I don't know, like $2,300 a month or something. And, 
Um, like last year, I've, I've tracked that property, um, and I know that it's at some point, I think like at the peak of the market, that like $2,300 a month place was going for like $6,700 oh. a month, you know, nine and a half years after we left. Um, and I mean, that's that's in, you know, certainly like non-central business district, you know, 45 minutes south of, of you know, the financial district in, in San Francisco. So, yeah, it's, it's gotten crazy. Your school uh, in LA? Yeah, yeah, I went to, to school at, uh, at Pepperdine. Yeah, that's a really nice area right there. So when you're thinking about um, opportunities that you want to, you, if, you, if you're going to do one of these things, you're going to, you know how hard it is to get something going, to run it once it's up and going and then to exit it. So you know that there's this like all-in commitment for some years at least. So you, how, how do you think about these opportunities? How, how do you find something that's kind of big enough and interesting enough that you're not going to get six months into it and say, you know, there's something else that's more interesting out there that I should be doing. Yeah, I think uh, I, 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 uh, I invest in a lot of companies and I work with a lot of founders and I'm, I'm personally, because it's, it's my own capital when I'm investing, um, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of these like middle market opportunities. You know, there's the stuff that you like, that you bootstrap or maybe you work on the side for a few months or a couple of years. And, and really the goal there in a lot of cases is like, you know, how do I get this thing to a thousand dollars a month in in extra income or ten thousand dollars a month in extra income so that I can go work on it full time? And then you have the opposite side, which is you know VC, um, which is you know largely if you're not talking about like uh, you know I mean we when we when we sold our last company um, to to all of our early investors we returned um, about fifteen x their money in in two years. Uh, and I think, you know, we had 20 investors and we probably got like three great job emails. Like nobody gives a shit about <laughs> 10, 15, 20 extra returns in VC. You know, all, all, mo most of them great people and, and still super friendly with all of them today. But, um, you know, that's, that's the gist of it. It's like if you're not, if you're not the, the kind of, you know, true outlier in a, in a portfolio, um, it's, it's a challenge. And so I actually, I think that there's massive opportunity somewhere in the middle there where it's like, you know, I don't care about making $10,000 a month and I don't want to just like do this kind of like solo entrepreneur thing. Uh, I, to be honest, I also don't care about building like a 10 or a hundred billion dollar company. Um, and so I think that, you know, whether you measure it from a revenue perspective or an exit perspective, um, both as an angel investor, but also as a founder, um, it's, it's an amazing deal to raise like a million or $2 million from angels who are happy about, you know, getting a, a 10x return in two years um, and build that business for a couple of years and sell it for, you know, our first company we sold for 45 million. Um, our, our last company we sold for a bit more than that. And so, you know, but both companies had not raised, you know, a ton of money. And so for the founders um, and for the early team, these are amazing exits and investors, you know, uh, they're not they're not getting out of bed and writing blog posts about those those types I mean, of returns. That's that. ideal, but right? They're super happy, right? It's even work better. With you again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the and idea so, is you start it up and then you, you you can you can sort of fund the initial stage from your own capital and then you get to some point where you need to sort of scale and you go to an angel. What 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 sort of terms do angels? look for because when I, I worked I've done a little as a lawyer I did some VC and that the documents that we used to and I was always on the side of the VC not on the side of the entrepreneur the terms that we would hand across I'd always be like this is the, the only way that someone's going to sign this stuff is if they are so focused on just getting the pat on the back from the VC you know like this is the this is the stamp of approval that you've got the money from this guy 
prefs. But if you look at the terms, it's like you got 25% compound in these prefs for the VC to get paid before you get paid. So if you don't, if you don't get over that hurdle, there's not going to be much left here for you as a founder. Like you've got to be confident that you're going to smash this out of the park. So what do you, what do you get from an angel? What's different? Um, I mean, I think, you know, one, one way that the industry has really transformed, um, you know, the first, the first startup that I worked at in, in, in 2010, um, as, as an early employee, um, you know, like the, the terms were, were largely up until uh, probably like 2012, 2013. I think it was very common that you would have these um, wildly different terms from, from different, you know, investors and you would have, you know, most favored nation. And so you had to be like really careful about, you know, I think sequencing capital in. And even as a small startup, I, I think, you know, that first, that first um, startup that I worked at, I, I think the seed was around like a million or a million and a half dollars. Um, and was the company was founded in Boston, I think two years before I joined, um, and it was largely Boston VCs. And um, I think probably every one of those VCs had their own paperwork. And so, you know, also, you know, as, as a lawyer, it's like when you're when you're raising uh, when you are raising uh, a million or a million and a half dollars, uh, and you're dealing with you know even just like four, six, eight people on the cap table coming in with wildly different terms. I mean, I think very commonly companies who are raising a million bucks were immediately turning around and spending, um, you know, fifty to seventy-five thousand <laughs> on legal on, face on lawyers, <laughs> right? And so this is the thing where it's like, yeah, I think in that like you know two thousand two to probably like twenty twelve range, this is like where uh, you know it's a, it's a great time to be like a service provider. Like you want to be doing yeah. like back office services, accounting, <laughs> you know, law firm for these companies. VCs aren't making a ton of money. Founders may not be making a ton of money. But like, you know, and then over the last 10 years, it's certainly been landlords. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, now I think really what's what's trans, like transformed at least the early stage industry. And I think this is this is fairly specific to the U.S., although I think it's growing um, pretty rapidly outside of the U.S., is this concept, at least for early stage financing of a safe. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with with safe notes, which were standardized by, you know, Y Combinator, um, you know, probably starting eight, eight plus years ago, um, but really became, you know, started to become ubiquitous with almost all YC companies, you know, shortly after the fact. But now, you know, um, I, I mean, I don't even know if YC, it's hard to track the numbers because these are just available on Y Combinator site. But, you know, there are these like very simple standardized documents, um, you know, a lot of VCs uh, you can, you initially. Just, do you want to just explain what a safe is? Yeah, yeah. So a safe, um, a safe is, is um, it's, it's basically, uh, it's, it's a, form of a convertible note um, that converts to future equity. So, um, it, you know, I think largely the way that these are structured is, um, you know, trying to be, uh, trying to do convertible note where you're not actually having to go through the process of, you know, selling equity in a deal and the deal is a little bit more flexible, um, but doing so in like a two or three page document, whatever it is, where, you know, there's, th these are, I think, ambitiously founder friendly. Um, so, you know, there, there's a couple different forms of a, of, of a note, um, the, of, of the safe note. Um, and so you can do things like giving a discount, um, with that note to early investors. You cannot give a discount. Um, you know, I think that there's one where you can actually, um, pay interest, uh, on, you know, through a safe note. So there's, there's a couple different, um, there's a couple different versions and occasionally, um, companies will do side letters. You know, I, I, I would never advise that. I think it's, it's super easy to get 20 people on your cap table 
with you know fifty or hundred thousand dollar checks that all sign the you know exact same safe note. You pay zero in lawyer fees. Um, you you pay zero to kind of get that funding. Uh, and then when you go convert it, uh, and you're converting into you know equity in a Series A or at a later round, um, you know these are all kind of commonly recognized uh, by lawyers and lawyers. You know I think largely and accountants largely have a a pretty streamlined process. Like they've dealt now with companies that use this form of a convertible note. Uh, to convert that into future equity. Um, and so I, I think it's it's a great tool for founders, but it also works super well for VCs because I think, look, like, you know, I don't think that VCs 10 or 15 years ago um, enjoyed the process of like having to explain to founders why the founders needed to pay, you know, $50,000 out of pocket immediately. And now that 50,000 can go to, you know, an early sales hire or half of an engineer or something. So it's, 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 it's a much more capital efficient way to kind of get the first, usually like million or two or three million dollars into the company. Do the, and do, then it has do VCs use the, VCs use safes or um, angels? Yeah, or, or angels use safes. Um, definitely, early stage VCs uh, will will sign safes. I don't know it's, if it's their preference, but I think what we've seen is like um, from VCs, there is there has been this rush uh, to go down market, and so by that I mean it's like. You know, a lot of these um, companies who, or a lot of these VC firms who were focused on like middle or late stage venture capital, they were doing like Series B, Series C. Generally, we're talking like $10 million uh, plus in terms of check size. Um, you know, certainly a trend in the last, I would say, five to seven years where a lot of these firms have come down and started writing at first like million dollar checks to lead a seed round or to um, co-lead a Series A. And now, I mean, you see through different scout programs and you know different ways of, of like introducing very small checks. I think VCs realized it's highly advantageous to a build that relationship on day one, uh, and b just as importantly, like you're getting data points, you're getting the investor update, whether you have a ten thousand dollar check or a ten million dollar check, uh, you get access to the founder. You know, we had people. I think our minimum check size in, in our last round at my company was. You know, probably twenty thousand dollars. But whether you were putting in twenty thousand dollars as a VC, a seed stage VC, or as an angel, um, we were sending you the same update. We were meeting right. with you, taking your calls, and so it's such a great way, even for these, you know, um, three hundred million, six hundred million, like multi-billion-dollar funds to get access and buy them access for twenty-five thousand, fifty thousand dollars pop. Um, you've seen this kind of like. Uh, you know, in some cases it's super focused. In some cases, it's a much more of a spray and pray approach. To just like invest in every early stage company that we can, and we'll just like see. And, and twenty five thousand dollars isn't the end of the world one way or another, but it gives us like the leverage and the you know FaceTime with the founder to to put in a much larger check down the road. That's interesting. So they're using it like an information gathering exercise, like a min raise in poker or something like that, just to see who else exactly. wants to stay in the pot. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. Uh, safes were. I, I'm familiar with the safes because I've just read them. Uh, I've never. I've never negotiated one, but I was. I'm a little bit pre-safe. But I, the the reason that just for folks at home, the reason that the money goes in as a convertible note is so that you're not immediately. If you're the investor and you put a million dollars into a into a company and you get a third of the equity and there's nothing in there but an idea, if the founders then turn around and liquidate, they get two thirds of the million dollars that you've put in. So you put the money in as a convertible note before you wait and see if there's something that's going to happen in there. And then you convert when you're confident that they're not just trying to squeeze you for some portion of your money. The safes that I have seen, the idea was that 
we're so early on, it's so hard to fix a value here. What we're going to do is we're going to put the money in. When the next round occurs, when it's easier to fix a value, we're going to then renegotiate, not renegotiate, we're going to know what your shareholding is. And so you might be getting a discount. You might, you don't necessarily get a discount. You might get some interest, might get something else. And that's kind of how it works. When it's progressed a little bit more and you get some more uh, formal VC or, or, or just a bigger round, then that's when we're going to fix it. When, when you do these investments as the angel, how, how do you like to structure and what, what, are, you, what are you looking for? So, um, so I am, uh, I'm an LP in Y Combinator. So I get, I get, um, you know, a, a tiny fractional percentage of every, you know, of, of most companies or every company that goes through plus some of their like later stage deals where now YC is, is leading these, um, you know, series B's, series C's through their continuity fund. Um, but I also really like to double down on founders and, um, I would say sectors that I know well. And so historically that's been real estate tech companies. Um, it's increasingly becoming kind of people operations and HR tech and recruiting tech. Um, and then there's, there's always some like, just kind of like big wild swing bets that I, that I'll do where it's like, I don't, I don't know if you can build a supersonic jet, but let's spend <laughs> 50 grand and find out. Cold really. fusion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, pets.com 2.0. Um, so, you know, I think, um, I think you know in almost every case uh, I am never negotiating uh, the. I, I, You're not negotiating really the terms, like a, right? Yeah, it's 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 they're pretty much set by the founders, and I think um, you know there is a rush to get into these hot deals, and I think historically, depending on who you ask, there there uh, these these very hot deals where it's like you're just like fighting and throwing elbows, like trying to get into the deals. It's very hard to say you know if if the cap. Which is basically like the you know kind of the implied valuation without actually like structuring it as an equity deal. But if the cap on a two-week-old company uh, is an eighteen million dollar cap, <laughs> and that company is raising two million dollars, uh, you know the implied valuation—it's not an actual valuation—but the implied valuation is that like uh, all of this money will basically convert at a you know twenty million dollar valuation into the next round. <laughs> And so, I mean, 18 cap is not crazy, right? I mean, there's there's plenty of extremely credible, you know, second and third time founders now right. that are raising on these. There's, you know, it's like there's a joke. Like if if you're any employee at any level who's ever worked at Stripe, uh, and you go out and start a company, like you will find hundreds of investors who want to invest at a, a 15 or an 18 cap into your company. Uh, and and a lot of times, I think to your point, like these, there, I think very rarely I'm investing pre-idea. Like I like to see. You know some confidence in a direction, but I think in in many cases I've invested you know very much pre-revenue, um, and on paper and and now a couple times through actual you know liquidity events that has worked out. It's also not worked out, and so uh, I mean I I don't have uh, you know I think you know this 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 uh, these conversations and these podcasts are often about like strategy. I think the strategy for me is trying to find like who's a founder who I know will just fucking kick ass like. In many cases, you know, the companies end up pivoting a little bit. Like it's it's very hard and very rare that I think I've certainly seen it, but I think it's very rare that you have a uh, a founder or a set of founders where they are, you know, a month or two into their idea, and that company or that idea looks the same at year three that it did on you know week three. And so you're you're always learning, you're always adapting. And actually, if it is the same, it's it's almost in some cases it can be concerning because it's like, wait, you went out. Spoke to hundreds of customers, talked to all of these VCs, hired experts from the industry, 
you just nailed the idea like perfectly the first <laughs> yeah, time, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's certainly a strategy in doing that, which is kind of like, I think you have to be careful in the other direction about not asking everybody in the world, uh, you know, what they, uh, what they want because everybody's going to want different things. And so it's really hard to build a company going around and saying, Hey, how can we help you? Um, but you know, there has to, there has to be a thesis there, but I think largely it's, you know, there, there's always this, um, this idea of, do you invest in, in the industry? Um, do you invest? Is it about getting timing right? Uh, is it about getting the total addressable market right? Um, and I think certainly, you know, for me, it's some, it's some crossover of, um, you know, is this, is this kind of the right time for this? Um, what is, what does the TAM look like to probably do a lesser extent, but much more so like who's, who are the founders? Um, are they awesome? Like, do they have the grit? and intelligence and wherewithal to just like brute force this thing to success. Because I think I've seen, I mean, we've all seen so many great ideas fail. Like ideas are shit. Like, right. you know, I think for, for the right companies, if you're going after cold fusion or if you're going after building a new supersonic jet, yeah, you should have like a pretty clear idea of- You, of need, a, you need an aerospace engineer. Right, yeah, yeah, we hope. Um, we hope it's not, you know, a, a couple Milton. of philosophy kids from Stanford or something, but um, you know, you never know. I, uh, I, I've been joking about setting up a cold fusion company that's pre-technology and so you can invest while we just kind of figure out, you know, we know that nobody's ever figured it out before, but with enough money, I'm prepared to like, I'll, I'll stand yeah. at the front like Trevor Milton and I'll roll that yeah, truck down is, the hill. This is a $400 million spec right here. I mean, this is, this is, uh, right. these are, these are the days to be chasing that. And then you put that pre-technology idea, you know, quote unquote on the blockchain yeah. Um, you know, throw Bitcoin in there or something, and, and you've Rub got some a cannabis oil on it. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all worked out super well. So, and, when when you're 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 now an experienced uh, founder, uh, startup uh, kind of manager operator, the current thing that you're doing, you're using um, some the strategies a little bit like consult to build some software, so you're kind of like getting paid to figure out what these guys are going to need and then you're going to standardize that formalize that into into some form of software that then that will eventually become the product is that the is that the strategy yeah. that you're pursuing there yeah i think this is uh the current company lasky is uh it's it's certainly a different strategy from from anything that we've we've you know done before um and and to be honest i think you know it's a it's a less aggressive but a, a really fun strategy which is is something that i'm you know certainly excited about um it's like I get to work with you know some of my best friends and we get to like very much pick and choose our customers uh it's all you know it's all funded by us we haven't raised you know any outside capital and so this is like you know, there's there's zero pressure i don't have to write investor updates we're not you know out there pitching um it's simply a mix of, of I, I think a few ideas that we've always wanted to build of taking consulting and taking agency work and really truly seeing you know how far we can actually automate that and productize it and so there's there's a few different ways there, but I think we're we're really starting and, and focusing with um, helping companies get their sales and marketing in order because a lot of times I think it's a hybrid. It's like in some cases um, companies have no idea what they're doing, and so we can come in and actually like write that playbook. And I really like the idea of opinionated software. So opinionated software is is uh, I, I don't think it's a new thing. It's been around for a while, but you know I think a really good example of opinionated software is like goal setting. Um, or maybe one-on-ones uh, with with your employees, which is like 
know, there were always ways of documenting and writing notes around one-on-ones or, or writing down your, your OKRs or your KPIs or your goals for your business. Um, there have been a number of companies that have done extremely well saying like, don't just give people a blank canvas and, and like give them a place to type this shit. Like actually tell them and direct them and handhold them occasionally with like very integrated professional services who are like in the business running um, coaching seminars around like how to do great one-on-ones with your team, how to hire well, how to set great OKRs. And so when you look at companies like, I think that there's great up and coming companies here like Lattice, there's super established companies like Workday, um, but these companies generally have a thesis. Like it's not this kind of like blank slate of like note taking software. Like it looked like, you know, 10 years ago in a lot of these cases, it is, uh, it is like do this step, then do this and we will kind of take care of the rest. Um, and so starting to do that with, you know, sales and marketing, but, but starting with an approach of like, you know, I think, you know, we've built, uh, as a team, we've built, you know, um, businesses that are, that are profitable and we've, we've sold a company together and we've worked at a huge company. And I think we, we know a lot about sales and marketing, but, uh, we're also trying to learn. And so part of the consulting aspect is that, you know, currently we're, we're a month in, we have. Um, eight clients that were that that are like you know usually early to mid stage um, with with an enterprise thrown in there as well, um, and we see all of these different ways that companies are doing things around their go to market strategy and around sales strategy. Um, we also work with a lot of you know external sales coaches and consultants and stuff. So a lot of this is just like it's pure like intelligence gathering, it's information gathering, it's trying to figure out like what's working at what what stage, um, and then through that on the back end, it's it's very easy to say. If I've done this thing manually, it's not a month, it's probably not six months, it might be a year or many years. You know, we have a really good sense of what a you know sales expert or sales consultant or sales coach or you know somebody who's doing this like back office automation actually does when they go into the company. Um, and you know, through software, I think that there's a lot of ways to actually like make that process more objective, um, you know, standardize it and also just bring the cost down. Like at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're sending cold emails here, folks. Like this, this, this isn't the end of the world. You shouldn't be spending a um, hundred thousand dollars a month on your like cold email strategy. Um, and yet, you know, tons and tons of, of you know mid market companies are doing that. Um, and so there's there's uh, a lot of things that we're excited about. And then I think you know in the future, um, transferring that and and copy and pasting and templatizing that into other things uh, is is something that we're super excited about doing that for research and marketing and, and some other areas in the business. So you use the consulting to go in and just look at how lots of different folks are doing it. And you can, because you've, you've had some experience doing it and you know what the current state of the art is in the market, what other people are doing. You can say, have you considered this with the objective of eventually building this software that it kind of prompts you through the process. It, it's not just record a note. It's like, this is, this is best in class or this is what you should be doing at this stage. Do this record yep. that and then you can have some sort of back end that collects all of the the yep. data and statistics and, and gives you some sort of report out of that yeah exactly right yeah and i think the you know the, the um vcs don't like this idea which is totally fine with me um I, you know it's it's a business where like we're we're a month in we have a small team uh we are profitable today like this is this is like an agency business that becomes a software business and i think if you look at um from a like you know, does this ever become a big business? The answer is like, I don't know. I think I would be bullshitting you and everybody. It's <laughs> if I was like, yeah, this is like our very clear path to like a billion dollars. I think, you know, the, the, this, 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 um, this idea of like taking a breath and just like, 
not coming in like, you know, hard headed and saying like, this is the way that you should do everything. We're three weeks old and we like know our shit. Like, you know, I, I think that there's, there's mutual learning on both sides. And I think one thing that inspires me is when I look at companies like, you know, I mentioned Workday, uh, I think, you know, Shopify is another classic example. Like the team at Shopify, lest we forget, I think spent, you know, three years with a single customer, which was basically like themselves trying to sell snowboards online before <laughs> they were like ever thought like, hey man, like maybe we should go repeat this process and like see if we can make this into a platform. Three years is a long time. And so, um, you know, doing that, uh, I think we're super comfortable just doing like the agency and consulting piece for a while. I don't know if it's three years. I don't know if it's six months. You know, you look at Workday, like at the time that Workday went public, um, I don't remember exactly, but I, I think, you know, close to half of their total revenue at the point of their, you know, filing their S1 uh, came from professional services. And so Workday was a company with, you know, extremely legit founders who came from PeopleSoft, like they knew software, they knew what it took. But I think the, the, the differentiated approach is that um, in our case, there's a million things to help you with sales. There's a million, you know, eBooks that you can go buy on sales. There's a million coaches and consultants that you can bring in. You know, how all of this shit actually fits together. And in a lot of cases, you have the software, but you don't even have time to use it because you're, yeah. you know, you're like an early stage company and it's crazy. And so if we can come in and say like, what are your goals? Your goals are to, you know, sell an extra $200,000 a month of software by X date. Like, let's back that up and actually talk about like how you could do that in a more kind of sustainable automated way. Um, and so just doing that with companies is really, you know, with on, on the financial side and the HR side is, is really how Workday got their start. Um, and I think that there's certainly a path there for, for sales and for marketing and for engineering, which is just, um, you know, everybody's so, focused on like getting the product out. And I, and I think in a lot of cases that's premature. Like you want a product so that you can go raise capital. And then all the time you're like, well, shit, is this the right product to go build? Um, and so I've always been a fan, like, you know, we, we certainly don't want to be in the business of, of selling our time forever. Uh, but it's, it's a great way to make, uh, you know, to kind of build the business and self fund the business and then see, you know, I think we're, we're open. It's like in a year, um, we could say, holy shit, we have a thing here that like will become a billion dollar company and we need capital to go like double down on it and, and scale it. Or I think in a year we could go, you know, we're running a, a $2 million a year revenue business with decent profit margins and we can hire whoever we want. And like, that's a good life. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think we're kind of keeping options open. I love the idea of the pivot. It's sort of... It in in my it's not so i'm not i'm not in the in the startup vc san francisco world so it might be like me describing goodnight moon to you but i'm going to give you my my impression of what happens I, I, this is just me listening to other podcasts and kind of trying to figure it out but I've, I've listened to this one where so the value hacking period is like you're going through and you're trying to work out how are we actually going to make money or what is the problem that we're actually going to solve and i think the you know, I find it, it's kind of like that. The, the most hilarious example of it is, uh, you know, a successful example of it is Stuart Butterfield with, uh, with Slack, where they're basically trying to build a game. Right. And they build this tool for sort of uh, coordinating all of their other, you know, their sales engineers, the software engineers. And that tool that they're building for the game eventually becomes the product of the company, somewhat in the same way that. Uh, Shopify did it and they contacted uh, Mark Andreessen and they said guess what the uh, the game's dead but we've got this tool and Andreessen I, I think there's a pretty famous email or something where Andreessen's just like oh well what are you going to do like that's that's the right. way this business goes right so but yep. you know what what's your view on the 
on the the value hacking and the pivot. You know, I'd be terrified if a business that I was invested in just changed right. course all of a sudden, like midstream from a game to a to a tool like right. that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it. it um, you know, the 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 answer is that everybody. Um, you know, I think on Twitter and on podcasts, uh, and maybe this this makes me. Um, you know, a, a bad guest because it's like everybody has their thing and they're really trying to sell you on it. So, you know, you, you end up with these people um, who are extremely intelligent, like I said, on, on both sides where you have, um, you know, DHH uh, who's, who's, you know, building bootstrap software. And I think, you know, their, their company that, that now includes like, hey, the premium email tool and stuff, they're doing like $30 million a year with a, a relatively small team. Um, and so, you know, he does really well by going around the world and saying like, you're an idiot if you raise VC. Like I make thirty million dollars a year, uh, and I drive awesome cars, and I hire all, all like great people, and we like work thirty hours a week, and it's like <laughs> this very amazing lifestyle. And it's like that's awesome, dude. Like not many people can can get there. And then there's other people where it's like, like this is super simple. Like all you have to do is like just pick an idea and like you know stick to it, and like that's how you build billion dollar companies. It's like cool. There's there's a couple of those built every year too, um, and so like for everybody else in the middle. Um, you know, I, I think that like the, the actual truths, I think Slack is a great example. Um, you know, Twitter uh, was was created out of this like basically like ideation lab and it kind of started like I think they were doing like a podcast app or something and then they, you know, put this out there and it became wildly successful. Um, you know, even um, and, and there's just there's no one path, I think, I think is the answer. Um, you know, Palantir, another extreme example, uh, spent their first six years working with one customer. So, you know, very contrary to the advice of like, go out and just like watch that line grow and see how fast you can get customers. You know, they spent one or six years embedded with, you know, a single customer before they went out and they, they tried Who to get their second customer. was that CIA or something like that? CIA. Yeah. It wasn't really? <laughs> yeah. But I mean that, like, how do you, I, I mean, this is what I, I don't remember exactly, um, but like, how do you look at a business that is doing like pure software consulting for the CIA over six years and go, Shit, right. This is a great venture backable business. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, there's there's customer concentration makes me there. a little nervous. <laughs> right, exactly. So I, I think you know to your, to your question, the answer the answer. I mean, I think really is as an investor, the, the scary thing in in VC is um, you don't know, and and I think a lot of it is luck. Like there, you know, I think every every narrative that I've personally experienced around VC. Um, you know, is is there's there's some you know violation to that narrative like somewhere in my own portfolio, and I look at you know that's a that's a relatively small number of companies. That's um, you know as an LP, there's probably exposure to hundreds and hundreds of companies, but as a you know direct investor, um, you know I've I've put money into you know, somewhere in the range of like thirty to forty individual companies, um, and you look at like being a solo being a solo founder is like a terrible idea. Like you should never invest in solo founders. All right, like one of my top companies is is run by a solo founder. Like you should go out and do a lot of customer development first. All right, like one company was created, you know, literally overnight and became a huge success and you know had a big exit last year. It's like you just um, it's it's hard to ever know, and so that's why, you know, and, and I think so much of this business too. I think like anything in investment is relationship based, and so I always view it as um, you know play long term games with long term people. And so if I invest in somebody who I really like, and I think that they're super sharp, like, you know, of those 30 or 40 companies, there's there, you know, I've only been serious about investing for, um, you know, three or four years into VC backed companies, but 
you know, three or five of those companies have already sold and I regularly, or I have already, have already failed rather and probably another three or five have sold. And uh, I treat all of those founders the same. And I think that they treat me the same, like the companies that failed, the founders go off and they get jobs and then they work in those jobs for three years. And I think that they improve and they may meet people and they get ideas and then they go off and do it the second or third time, like maybe something works there. Um, and I think your, your, uh, your example too with Slack is like, this is why I think classically um, ideas can be overrated. I, 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 they're certainly not all overrated. Like there are definitely good ideas and bad, but um, a lot of times something sounds like a good idea and you go and try it and there's just, there's, there's nothing there. And so um, going back to like the grit and the, you know, ability for a founder to go like, what is the last like, you know, um, drop of juice we can squeeze out of this lemon before we give up, I think is like, a super, I mean, it's a very obvious quality to look for in founders, but I think like that's why it's important. There's a ton of other people who would have been like, well, shit, my game sucks, nobody wants it, like time to move on and go get a job at, you know, Microsoft or something. And uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think if you find the right founders who can like just, you know, are, are great, like are highly efficient at using that last bit of capital in, in ways that, you know, you can kind of throw that Hail Mary um, there's tons of stories and tons of cases where that's, you know, turned out to be a great thing. There was this idea in uh, San Francisco when I was there, and I think it's the, the, the entrepreneur. It's like someone who's, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. it's like, what, what's a entrepreneur? And how do you distinguish the real thing from these guys? Well, I think, um, I don't know. I think everybody's definition is a little bit different. I think the, I think, you know, there, there's, there's two ways that I've heard and, and that I've probably used entrepreneur. There's the um, there's like the derogatory version, which I think is you know, there's this idea of a sitcom startup, um, and a sitcom startup is like if you're watching like pick you know pick any wildly popular show, if you're watching Seinfeld or you're watching Friends or you're watching Cheers or something, there's always the one character who's like always working on a business, and the business like in the sitcom it always seems plausible, and then you like actually think about it. And you're like, shit, that is a terrible idea. Like this is, you know, like building uh, like, oh, like Ross at Friends is like off building like a like a bakery for dogs or something. And you're like, haha, that's funny. Then you're like, wait, if he actually did that, that would probably be, it'd be a disaster. And so there's like there's people that like build those, uh, which is kind of like they just want to build something. And so they take like the, the idea sucks and their execution sucks or whatever. And and I think in a lot of cases, the, the derogatory nature of that is like you're just going through the steps like you're raising capital to say that you've raised capital. There's no momentum there with that capital. There's no, there's no ROI. This is not, there's no chance of a dollar in $2 out with this business. Um, and so, and, and often I think the ways that like entrepreneurs in the derogatory sense get caught up in the game is, is around hiring. Like hiring is a, is a fucking mess for so many companies because once you have capital, it's very easy to feel like you need to go use that capital on like something. And I think that there is this danger, which is like, for for better or for worse, for popular companies, you know, 10 years ago, like raising a million dollar seed was like a huge milestone. I think when I raised for my last company in 2015, great companies were raising like two to three million. Now we're seeing a lot of companies raise three to five million dollars out of the gate, literally as like a month old, two months old. Like they may have an idea, they may already have an amazing founding team, but if you are a month in and I, you know, I plus other people give you $5 million, there is a massive danger in sprinting in the wrong direction really fucking fast with that money. 
Uh, and so that is what, you know, that's, that's something to avoid. And I think if you have a great founder and you have a great market and there's a great addressable you know, opportunity there, then like throwing $5 million, if they flail a little bit and hit the wrong direction, there's capital to go, you know, readjust into the right direction. Entrepreneurs, it's like, you know, you, you have, you, you are going and you're just raising money because your friends raised money. Um, and for whatever reason, you're just kind of going through the motions. And so you, you end up hiring people and hiring people is fun because a lot of times it's, it's, um, it's like one of these bullshit vanity metric milestones, like, Oh, how many people work for you? Oh, like we had five last month and we've grown really fast. And now we have 10. It's like, Oh my God, you must be hundred percent month on month. Quibi had 400 people. I guess they're doing super well, <laughs> uh, you know, so um so th th this this means nothing and um you know there's extremely successful right craigslist i love because craigslist uh did uh, over a billion dollars i think it was about 1.05 billion dollars um last year in 2018 i think they have a team of about 35 people um so and, and those companies do exist i mean plenty of fish like the dating company was kind of on a similar trajectory they had like four employees and were doing like over 100 million dollars in revenue um, so like none of these things match up. So that's like the derogatory sense. I think the, um, the, the, uh, I think the, the, the more interesting outlook for entrepreneurs is actually, um, the concept of like, you know, I've worked at now two pretty sizable companies and there's tons of people within those company, within those companies who are, um, extremely intelligent, extremely driven, uh, have never started a company, but really want to start a company. Um, and I actually view that as like massive untapped potential, like from a business standpoint, from a media standpoint, from a content standpoint, like these are the people who, um, you know, you are very interested in, you know, 15 years ago, you were subscribing to like Inc magazine and entrepreneur magazine and all this shit. You may have been working at a big company or working at a startup. Um, that was me. Like when I joined my first startup as an employee, I was just like, give me all the information about like how to be a founder. And I think. You know, there, there's a number of companies that have gone after these like entrepreneurs in a very like in a very kind of ambitious, non-derogatory you know sense of the word. Um, and I, there's there's huge value to be um, you know I think still extracted in helping people go from like you know I'm a successful engineer, successful salesperson, successful product manager um, at you know big company, small company doesn't matter. How do I go from like seeing what I do in this machine? So like going off and creating my own machine. Um, and that's why I think like Twitter is hugely valuable. You know, there's like incredible people on YouTube now that are just like, this is the like show your work that I think this is why it's so valuable on Twitter. Uh, you know, at least for like with founders and kind of like tech Twitter, which is like, if you show your work, it's like, I get this like snapshot or this movie that probably it's a lot of like revisionist history. It's a lot of bullshit, but I, I somewhat see the ups and downs of like all these different founders on Twitter talking about like, you know, a bad investor experience. You're talking about how they had to bootstrap their business for the first two years because they couldn't raise capital. Talking about how they got their first 10 customers. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that I, you know, try to do this. It's like nobody, I think very few people fall into this like, you know, like uh, myth of like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, which is like entrepreneurs are all like 18 and 19 and they get a great idea and they just execute for years. You know, it's like, it just, it, it so rarely happens. It's pointless. And so, um, creating content, creating resources for, uh, for like people who want to be entrepreneurs who are not, I, I think is, uh, is an awesome thing. So last question, how do you distinguish between the folks who make that successful leap from employee gifted in some 
specific vertical to being the person who's running the whole show? How, is it possible to know or is it just sort of you have no idea beforehand until they're tested or do you have some things that you look for in particular? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, again, I don't actually know if this is like, if this is true. I think it's, it's easy to, to have, uh, to have like a thesis here that, that might be very wrong. I think, um, you know, I've, I, um, I really, I think personally, I like to see that, uh, you are not good because you inherited like this amazing process. Like there's this, there's this concept in sales. It's like kind of a joke, but people took it as true for a long time, which is like when you're hiring a sales rep uh, and you have two candidates that are coming into the office today, back when offices were a thing, remember that, um, <laughs> you know, back, you know, now, uh, now on Skype or on zoom, you have two candidates that are coming in and you know, one of these candidates, you know, she worked at, Google uh, and she was selling YouTube ads and she's like showing you like, look at all these amazing things that I did. Like I consistently hit my quota. I did all this shit. And then the second person, you know, here she comes in and it's like, um, I sold uh, fax machines in Baltimore for the last 10 years and I hit my quota. It's like hire the second person. Like, <laughs> you, like these products are amazing. They sell themselves. Like go find the person who like actually had an uphill battle and like has the like yeah you know grit and tenacity to like go like figure out how to sell those things in 2020. Um, you know, and and there's like it sounds like a joke, but I mean there's like people out there today that are like literally selling like you know vacuum cleaners and fax machines and copiers and stuff. And it's like you know, I, that that doesn't always translate into uh, into a great founder, certainly not. But I think um, that idea of like at any level, if they're an engineer, if they're a salesperson, if they're a product person, um, it's easy for anybody to look good on paper. And I think one of the things that I try to distinguish is like, has there been any bad days in that process? Like, did you actually have to like fight to get there and like figure shit out and get creative and uh, and, and like get uh, get like in the weeds with, you know, your pricing and your positioning and your go to market. Um, and I think, you know, not everybody has that, but when I look at a lot of great founders today, whether they're, you know, first company or second company or whatever, like worked out or it didn't work out, um, the ability to, um, to take that and like kind of copy and paste it into a company is, is amazing. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, there's, there's founders like, you know, Austin at Lambda school and Austin was like, I think he was like in the Ukraine or something and he was like knocking on doors as like a Mormon missionary, like, you know, trying to convert people to, um, you know, to the Mormon faith and like, teach you you know, like barely spoke, barely spoke the, the language, whatever. And it's like now applying that same, like, we're just going to go out and like figure shit out and do whatever it takes to like an actual product and, and finding product market fit and hiring people and like convincing amazing people to join. I mean, there's so many other you know entrepreneurs. So I, I'm not saying that that's like, that is the the one and only thing, um, but I think a lot of times you you do find that like level of hustle um, with with people who come from like non desirable, not great companies, and they end up being like fantastic entrepreneurs. Um, and and certainly you know the other can be true, but I, I, I a lot of times I think I end up like betting on the underdog, uh, you know, from a from like a you were an engineer like the world's worst company, but like you seem uniquely gifted, and like I don't know how you ended up there, but like. I think if you're running your own thing, you can make it successful. So what you're saying is my pre-technology cold fusion startup needs the pager king of Glendale to come in and it's my first hire. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
find um, you know find that last person who's like at the the auto body shop who's still selling <laughs> spinners in, in right. 2020 uh, and uh, and get that person you know moving cold fusion immediately oh, that's awesome uh, Chris if folks are looking to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you how do they go about doing that yeah um, definitely uh, Twitter is fun I like Twitter um, uh, you can you can find me at my handles uh, Chris J Baki B-A-K-K-E on Twitter um, you can also email me I'm Chris at Lasky L-A-S-K-I-E dot C-O um, I love I love just like helping uh, the last thing is I love just helping founders uh, people who are looking to become angel investors uh, people who are looking to become uh, early employees at companies um, all, all, all for free. Like I think that we're, we are very big believers in you know the power of karma. The the story that I just told somebody like right before this over email uh, is that you know in my last company um, we worked with a handful of founders when they were like eight or ten people, and we were selling a product that should have been you know to everybody else. We were selling it for two three thousand dollars a month, and I remember giving it to Tony at a company called DoorDash for like two hundred dollars a month, right? And and this is like he's like few months out of YC uh, and like that turned out super well. Uh, we took a bet on, on a couple of co-founders in, in Los Angeles uh, and you know when they were fairly early today they have 15,000 employees. So it's like you just never know. Like I think with both of these cases it's like we, we probably saw some handwriting on the walls early on. There would be you know these, these kind of successful companies but um, you know ultimately I love getting emails and just like chatting and shooting the shit with people. Um, it's, it's what I spend like a lot of nights doing. Um, and so if you ever have like a question about um, starting a company, investing in one or growing sales, just feel free to shoot me a note or follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's fantastic. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Uh, Chris Bucky, Lasky, thank you very much. Cool. Thanks so much. <laughs>